Good afternoon, Sarah Hepla. Good afternoon, Nancy Rahman. It's a weird. It's a weird recording time for us, and uh, we're both. Uh, we've both had busy and interesting days. Has has your like been- night owls? It's um. It's three thirty <laughs> here in Dallas. Three thirty p.m. I'm going. I feel like a college here. kid. <laughs> oh man, my days are even jam packed, um, including doing it awesome interview yesterday with two attorneys about this uh, murder story I'm, I'm working on. It's just mind-blowing. Mind-blowing. So, yeah, there's that. Um, what are you working on these days, Sarah Hepla? Oh, I'm working on making a living. I'm, I'm lots of different hustling going on. Nothing to, to tell about exactly right now. Not um, yet. Not yet. Yeah. Um, I just got back from a trip to Hot Springs, Arkansas. Could you tell could you tell our listeners about Hot Springs, Arkansas? Yeah, it was cool. It's like this like kitschy, cool little town where they have these baths. Um like they're like old school spas. Like the one that I was in, I think it was built in like 1912. And I don't think it's been changed since then. Like it had the same infrastructure. I felt like a rich, eccentric woman that was sent away to the Catskills to repair. You had to take um, the waters. Had to take I, the exactly. Waters. I had to take the waters. Yep. Yep. So let me ask you a question. You know, sometimes you think of these baths and they're sort of like Byzantine or Roman or something. What what's the equivalent of an old school American one? What is it? What does it look like? Does it have like colonnades and arches and I don't like know? Tile floors and very high ceilings and crown molding. Um, but the tiles like kind of crack and like clawfoot tubs. You're Can in this you be- clawfoot tub and then and there's like this bubbling thing, like this thing that like it's not a jacuzzi. It's like a clawfoot tub that you immerse yourself in. And then there's like this, some kind of pipe that's down there. And then it like, it like bursts, uh, <laughs> bubbles. At, yeah. Like at you. It's sort of a weird deal. It's like an old school jacuzzi. Um, um do they come to like to do like women in the caftans or something come and pour salts into the into the water or are you left I think alone? they did that. I think they did that before the pandemic. And now it's just sort of like it's like they used to come and scrub you with a loofah, like scrub you really, really hard. Oh, and now they're yeah. kind of like, here's your loofah. Have oh, fun man. with it. You no, know, I know. I was really hoping somebody would like, you know, exfoliate the ever living shit out of me. Yeah. Um, and then you do, you do this, like, like there's all this, like, there's like this series of things that you do. Then you go and you sit in what feels like a phone booth and they, and it's a steam bath. Can you explain to our listeners what a phone booth is? Oh God. <laughs> it's a narrow, okay. It looks like a narrow closet. <laughs> and then, um, there's this little sliding wooden thing that, that goes right around your n- neck So that it basically blocks the steam in the bottom, in the bottom half of your body. But you feel like a head on a plate. You know, you look like a sort of buffet. Oh, my God. This is so old school. I remember, like, seeing, like, 1950s I Love Lucy shows where, like, they they like it would be a thing like you'd get in this steam thing and you'd be really fat and then you'd come out super thin because yeah. they had like steamed all the fat off of you. Or they something. still did that in the 80s and 90s. 
Wow. Um, I know they did that. Like professional cheerleaders do that all the time before they have weigh-ins. Oh, they sweat. oh yeah, yeah. I have friends. Because yeah, um, you sweat it off. Yeah. On the wrestling and then team. You had to go, you had to sit in what's called a sits bath. I mean, <laughs> accurate name. Um, and it was like a low little bathtub where you sat your bottom part and my legs were like hanging out. It was really funny looking. <laughs> um, have you been to the... Uh, well, I, I used to go to them in L.A., but I'm sure they have them in other places. Have you been to the Korean spas? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I love a Korean spa. Oof, talk about, I, I'm not I'm not going to try to tee up our last section here, but like they literally scrub every part of you but your labia. Like yeah. they scrub every part of you. And it's a it's like a, a Korean woman and she's just wearing like a black bikini bottom, sometimes yep. a top, usually not. And you're they, they lie you on this um, wet, table, a table that's either they're constantly putting water on it or it's got some kind of like rubbery sheet. And they, it's like 40 minutes of scrubbing you. And uh, it's pretty amazing. And then they have like all the, um, all the cold pools and the salt pools and then the mineral pools. And speaking of that, we can, uh, I don't think it's, it's letting a cat out of the bag to say that my lovely friend, Sarah Hepla is actually going to be coming to pay me a visit in New York city. And I'm letting you know, Sarah, across the yes. river in New Jersey, there yes. is this crazy, crazy multi-level Korean spa where you can take a free shuttle from 42nd street over the river. So we might, we might have to make Let's do a podcast from there. Oh, you know, actually, you probably could because there's so... I went there with a friend of mine who's half Korean. She she was the one that knew about it. There's so many rooms in this place. It's like, it's some like giant grand building and there's places to eat and hang out and there's an outdoor pool. I got to find the name of it so our, our listeners can know and go because it's pretty rad. Maybe we'll do it. That'll be fun. Be I'll be coming up to see you. Birthday yes. present for me. Birthday yes. present for you. And that's at right. the end of October. That's right. Everybody should, you should start planning your gifts now. I'll provide the address. You know, you yes. can start sending them now. Um, well, that's nice that you did that. I did not do that. I I didn't have anything. I, I got a manicure yesterday. That, good for that's you. Pretty good. Yeah, it's pretty good. Um, and I, I got a manicure and I also, I went on a Twitter rant yesterday. That was kind of cathartic in a way. You know, and I, I went on a Twitter rant because there was a story that I actually heard about, gosh, it was a couple of months ago, but then it sort of passed me by on the radar. Then Matt Taibbi wrote something about it. And if you guys aren't reading Matt Taibbi, okay, he's another one. If you think Kat Rosenfield, you know, gets up in the morning oh. and just cranks out 8,000 words, not only does Matt Taibbi get up in the morning and crank out 8,000 words, but when you hear him talking, he's like, oh yeah, I wrote a book about that. Yeah. Anyway, I wrote a book about that. <laughs> and then I wrote a book about this. And then I ghost wrote Taibbi this book. just like, puts the rest of us to shame. Oh, it's yeah, so I unfair. should just, I'm just crying into my, into my word processor. But Cut anyway, out, Matt yes, cut it out. But then you very smartly, and I'm super glad you did, you linked me Sam Harris talking with Meg Smaker. I'm not sure if maybe you want to tee it up a little bit, but uh, this story really, really affected me. I think it's affected a lot of people. And uh, I went on a bit of a Twitter rant yesterday. So while you were getting scrubbed in an old school spa, mm -hmm. I was dumping 3,000 words into Twitter. So. All right. Well, that's that's a fair trade. Yeah. Um, I so so this is a three hour podcast on Sam Harris's Making Sense podcast. And um, 
you know, we've talked about this story before. Meg Smaker is the filmmaker who uh, did a film called that was originally called Jihad Rehab. It is now called The Unredacted. Uh, she spent time with a group of men in um, a Saudi rehabilitation facility. The hoops that she jumped through in order to get this story told are quite extraordinary. And it was the subject of a New York Times piece by Michael Powell that Nancy and I talked about probably about three weeks ago. Meaning Smaker was. Yep. Yeah. And, um, what happened is that when it first came out, there was a lot of huzzah about it. People talked about how extraordinary it was. It got a lot of great reviews. It got into Sundance. And these um, people, we should just mention, so these people were pe- uh, people that it had been jihadi who had then been sent to Guantanamo, correct? Oh, yes. Yeah, sorry. And now they were sent to this rehab in Saudi Arabia. So, you know, these are people that have now had, you know, a decade or more long history of um, either being imprisoned and tortured and also having been indoctrinated in, in t- toward like, you know, extreme hatred and violence toward the U.S. And Meg Smaker, who is an American, decided, and she decided this after 9-11. I'm sorry, I'm stepping on you, Sarah, here. No, go for um, it. She was, she's been a firefighter in California. Her father was a firefighter or is a firefighter. And um, I think she was in her early 20s. It was after 9-11. She was an active firefighter. She tells a pretty amazing story on Sam Harris's show um, about how when the first plane hit, she was off like in the kitchen and she came in, she started kind of yelling at the guys for like watching TV, the uh, other guys in her firehouse. Or she right. She's like, I don't care them. what movie you're watching. I don't Turn care it what off. movie you're watching. And they're like, no. And they looked and she realized this, this was actually happening. And she said the first reaction was just, of course, just absolute, you know, sadness for the people inside, but also they had been trained and, and understood that steel enforced buildings do not they don't collapse. You can't. Like, if there's a fire there, they're never going to collapse. And it looked like such an incredible, you know, I, I, she uses the word, they were almost like envious that these firefighters in New York could get to, you know, experience saving people in this incredible, monumental, world-known building um, without, you know, she, no one was fearing that it was going to come down. And then the second plane hit. And she said the mood in the firehouse immediately went from, oh my God, look at this, and curiosity to hatred. Immediately. They didn't know who was doing this yet, but there was such hatred. And she told this interesting, interesting story. She said, her father told her that there were three kinds of people. There are the kinds of, if someone hits you, there's three kinds of people. One person runs away, one person hits you back, and the third person says, why did you hit me? And Smaker was of the mind to say, why did you hit me? She needed to understand what sort of climate it was that there was such hatred for the United States that people would plan this and pull this off. And so she went, where, where was the first place she went to, to Saudi Arabia? I don't, I don't remember. Was it Yemen? Yemen. 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 And she, yeah, yeah, she goes over to Yemen and she is a fire, she's teaching them to be firefighters over there. She is, a, she has these extraordinary stories. This incredible. woman has had an exceptional life. I mean, she is an incredible badass. One of the things that I take away from this, from this long but but totally absorbing podcast is that this woman is like my new hero. Hmm. Um, she curses like a sailor. She she she's kind a six of li- foot. She describes herself as a six foot tall albino Godzilla. And then there's this one thing where she's talking. She's literally like two and a quarter hours into the podcast, and she's like, "Well, because you know." <laughs> I understood. So when, you know, that when I got kidnapped, so I had this certain, you know, empty, and Sam was just like, excuse me. So I'm just 
I just like a little, if you could like just, you know, illuminate a little. She's like, oh yeah, no, no, no. That was, yeah, that was like a year after. That was in Columbia. It's like, so, and she's just literally trying to like run past. He's like, hi, could you just maybe slow down for one second? Yeah. So she's like, no, no, it was after. I'd already gone to, you know, Middle East. And then I, then I went to Columbia and yeah, I was kidnapped for two weeks. And, you know, other people, you know, the group that had kidnapped me, um, they were beheading and disemboweling people I knew. And you're just like, wait, what? And then she goes back to the Middle yeah. East. I mean, yeah. it's just, she's, she's so, and she's, she's very funny and she's weirdly empathetic, but also like intolerant of, of crap. She's just one of the most interesting people you're ever going to listen to. Mm-hmm. And she decides to make this documentary, which takes her years because what, okay, Sarah, when you're doing a difficult story, what is the, what's the first thing you need to do? What's the for besides obviously having the curiosity to to, to do the story? Door to door dash? I don't know. What yeah, there, there's that. No, you have to get people to trust you. Oh well, right? yes, you have to get people to trust you. And yeah. then how do you do that? You definitely do not show up in their yard with a camera, or you don't run up to them when they've in the middle of a tragedy and stick a microphone in their face, or you don't, um, as as some of the people she was, uh, some of the journalists and air quotes she was talking about. What we're, we're going to get into what happened to Smaker, but. When she was having her own serious exigencies, which we will get to, she would get these, you know, these calls from these journalists, like, hi, answer these three questions for us. And she'd be like, look, if you want to talk, I will talk to you, but I'm not going to like fill in blanks for you so you can write the pre-made story that you're handing to me, like some little easy bake oven story. And they're like, no, 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 no. Just, just tell us what we need. Yeah. It was kind of right. incredible. Right. Yeah. I mean, a lot of journalists sometimes by necessity parachute into a situation like that, needing, needing a quote by, you know, by deadline. And the, and, and the problem with that, or if you're, if you're parachuting in there for two weeks is, you know, who are you? You know, wh- why would I trust you? This is the most important story of my life. So she And stays it is on, my life. That's the thing. And it is like, my life. Yeah. It's her life. So... She makes and she learns the, Arabic, you know. She, she learns Arabic. She studies Islam. She she's so she's so cunning when she needs to be cunning. That whole story of making friends with the distributor of Coca Cola and Marlboro cigarettes. She's just yeah. she's she really is a heroic character. Heroic. Like there's no doubt. So she she wants to make this film. She's she's made a few short documentaries before, but she really doesn't have anything big under her belt. And she says later, she's like, I must've talked to 75 people for money. Like I I couldn't get, I couldn't get arrested. And uh, she finally gets um, Abigail Disney, who is the granddaughter, not of Walt Disney, but of a Disney. And um, of course has a ton of money. And she, she gives her some money to make this film. She's a big, you know, she's a big supporter of it. And so um, uh, Meg's maker goes and, and makes this film. It takes a long time. And she makes it, and um, it's not quite ready, but I guess in terms of the way you get these things submitted, you submit the film before it's, like, completely ready to, like, Sundance and South by Southwest. And it gets accepted to uh, Sundance 2022, this year's Sundance. Yeah. It is, is right. So it gets accepted, which is really big because, as Smaker says, you get – they get something like 15 – thousand submissions okay and they take 10 but it was even more this year because other people did not want to submit during covid because there was no actual event and they wanted mm-hmm. to wait until there was an actual event so there was something like 30,000 submissions okay and she's one of them now 
I'm assuming most of our listeners know that Sundance is a very, very big deal. It's the biggest uh, independent, do you call it not film festival? What do you, is it a film festival? What would you call it? Yeah. What's Sundance? Film festival in yeah, Film the festival and competition, I would imagine. Yeah. Film competition. And, and you know, you are, you, you're, 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 first of all, if you're accepted, you're, you're basically going to get distribution and, and it's a, it's a very, very big deal. And she got accepted. Not only that, she got accepted in South by Southwest and she got accepted to a, a San uh, Francisco film festival that I don't think she names, but they did offer her a Vanguard award, you know, like they were honoring her. It was a big, big, and it wasn't, so the Vanguard Award, as she described it, it's not just that they're showing your film. They're showing your film. There's a Q&A. There's an after party. There's a gala. It's like, it's very big. And, and you know, she's going on. And, and this, I got to really give her credit for, because we're going to get into what happened. But she very, you know, she quotes people, what exactly what they said to her, and sometimes verbatim from the texts and from the emails, you know, saying like, I am, I am so amazed this is your first film. You should be so unbelievably proud. Like you're actually, you know, letting audiences, you know, decide for themselves. And you're, you're, you're just, you're giving these, you're, you're humanizing these men. And this is, this is an incredible thing. So this is all, everything is rolling forward. And do you want to, do you want to, do you want to say what happened? I have a feeling you're just going to do it better than, than I will. Well, I mean, so like all the pins are getting set up for her to roll a strike, right? And and what happens is that uh, there starts to get some some scuttlebutt on the Twitters uh, from various forces that like first the 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 scuttlebutt is that you know it's going to be Saudi propaganda, and right, and then once you know, and by the way, nobody's seen this film. Right. People have not seen. I mean, I think a few people that started banging the drum had, but no one's seen this film. It's not it's not for distribution. It hasn't been out yet. Okay, so if you're saying something about it, the chances are you've never seen it. Right. And it's just this moving target of criticism where, you know, it goes from that to like, well, but she's a white she's a white woman and she had an all white uh crew and and production company which she did not my understanding was that the first the first um cries of she doesn't have the right to make this film were from i guess other muslim uh or from muslim uh filmmakers who said mm-hmm. she she can't tell this story not not only does she not have a right to tell this story but she can't she axiomatically cannot tell the story properly because she is not a muslim which is like, wait, what? But okay, so they they do that. And then that starts to gather some momentum. And then it's like, well, the Saudi government, which which is debunked rather quickly because they weren't they weren't funding it. And then it was like, yeah, she's got all this white crew. No, that wasn't true either. Like the majority of her people working with her or, or a good number of them were not. And so she's actually kind of shocked by all this. And she's trying to play ball because what happens now is that Sundance starts to starts to shake and they're like well you know meanwhile they've like lauded it to the heavens and picked it but they're like well listen we need you to answer certain things we need you to like fill out certain things we need you to go and get it vetted by somebody else we need you to have your lawyers do x and y and z and they give her like one weekend and two days to get done like everything but she does it because even though it's impossible because she's saying like you're asking your lawyers to work over the weekend and they're a thousand dollars an hour and you have no money but she does it because she she this is her chance and she knows that she hasn't done anything wrong here and she knows that people love the film well 
I mean, can our can our listeners can our listeners uh, maybe fill in what happened? Let's give them dum 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 dum. Yeah. Well, Sundance drops her. Okay. She they drop the film. Okay. South by Southwest drops the film. She gets a personal phone call from the person at the uh, San Francisco uh, film. I think it was, I may be mixing up South and by Southwest and 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 San Francisco, but basically saying I I I I have everybody else against me. I can't. Yeah, that we, was the San Francisco one. Yeah, we we by necessity and this I guess this makes sense. I mean, by necessity you work as a group, right? It's not one person the head of it. And um, South by Southwest and, was like, uh, oh well, our you know. Sundance is really a diverse uh, film festival, but we're all white over here, and we really just can't take the heat of yep. 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 of the criticism that this is, you know, made by a white filmmaker for a, a mostly white group. So, and then they start giving accusations like, well, you know, the men that you interviewed, they didn't understand what they were doing. She's like, I've got consent forms. Like they, they that that was really awful. Like that, what you think these people are so stupid. They spent, you know, months and months with her on camera. They don't understand what's happening here. Um, in any you case, you can't we're, consent in a carceral state. But were they? They weren't. I mean, they were in rehab. Is that a carceral state? No, I don't know. All right. So, in any case, if you think so, this is obviously professionally bad. I mean, you're seeing everything is just like evaporating under your feet. The entire platform that you're that you're living on and what you've spent years. I mean, and then. I mean, and of course, let's just factor in the tens of thousands because the, these these there's two organizations. I don't remember the one name. Case I think was one of them. One organization. Cage. 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 I don't. I don't know what cages. I don't remember. I think it's like an advocacy group uh, that's sort of like about the injustices of the war on terror. Like I think they're they're all about like like healing the wounds from the war on terror. And she some and they somehow felt that she was ripping the scabs off the wounds. I I don't know, yeah. um, but you also have the two hundred people that are allied with the 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 filmmakers, some of whom's films did not get into Sundance. Um, they write letters, and now you have to like just times that by what by a thousand of the people on Twitter that are are calling you these unbelievably terrible things. This is this is a very 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 bad and scary place to be and she's trying to save her film and she's trying to keep herself from utter despair and then Abigail Disney weighs in and says she triply apologizes for having ever backed this film and she really should have realized now you have to understand She's already seen I guess whatever the rough cut was and praised Smaker to the heavens and flips it around. So you're you're dead in the water. She's got now something that she's worked on, and what are you going to do? She's still, you know, there were a lot of people that worked on it for free or for deferred money. She's got no more money. She's literally got no money. She's maxed out her credit cards. She's got nothing. She said, interestingly, and we'll, we'll get to a little bit of that in a minute, that she's going to have to move. She lives, I guess, in the Bay Area. She can't mm-hmm. afford to live there. She's got nothing. She's, she's lost everything, but you also have been, you've been, um, you are, you've become radioactive, right? So fortunately, I really do think the first time I heard about her was on Barry Weiss's site, which would make sense, of course, because well, Common Sense did a screening of this movie, or I know Barry did. God bless Barry Weiss. Yeah, and their new daughter—they have a little baby girl. Her and Nellie have a picture. It's very, very sweet. Um, um, So then, Michael Powell. Who uh, we we've said this before. If you're not reading Michael Powell, you you really should be in the Times. 
Oh, yeah, we got to talk about the times later, too. Oh, anyway, yeah, that's right. I forgot about <laughs> I that. I forgot about that. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. But um, anyway, um, he wants to interview her, and she's, of course, completely gunshot. She's like, who are you? Who are you? And she basically grills him. And he flies out and talks to her and spends 18 hours interviewing her. And he's the one whose article in September, I think, really, really cast a much bigger spotlight on it because I, I, I have no idea whether she, um, well, I guess Melissa Chen, Melissa Chen introduced her to Sam Harris. I know yeah. Melissa, Melissa's a friend of mine. Um, and, and she spent the time with Harris, um, and she really got a chance to give it a full airing. And it is, it's remarkable. It's devastating. It shows you human nature and it shows you also the capacity for this woman's empathy and proper anger. And do you think, is that what you, is well, that what you I got just, from I, it? I was just going to say, I mean, I, I think one of the, the things that I take away so intensely from this is the, is the deep well of her empathy. I mean, we've already told the story about how she was uh, somebody that wanted to understand 9-11 so much that she went over to the Middle East. Um, but, but there's a series of, of, of moments when she responds with, you know, her, her response is to understand, you know, she's, she's very, um, empathic even to Abigail Disney. Um, that's what, that's the one I'm thinking of, especially. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. She's, well, she's just like, I get it, you know, like, and I need you to know that Abigail Disney, like this, this movie doesn't exist without her. Um, and, and she's not in my, I'm not in her position and I'm not going to roll on her. And I'm not going to criticize her for what she said. And I hope that she eventually comes around, but I have no idea. Like, I don't, you know, one of the things that Abby, um, I'm sorry, that Meg, Meg's maker makes clear is that, you know, she had never really paid that much attention to cancel culture. She'd always kind of thought it was a overblown thing. She'd seen what had happened to Joe Rogan. She'd seen what had happened to Dave Chappelle. And it was like, yeah, 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 big deal. You guys have a bunch of money. She had never actually experienced what it was to get the rug pulled out from underneath her like that publicly and professionally so profoundly. And, you know, this is a woman that has been kidnapped. This is a woman that has been a firefighter. And she was like, this was the hardest thing. Yeah. And she spent 10 years, you know, trying to understand and then bring us work so that we can understand. This is, this is really, I think the most, I'm, I'm going to get all overcome as usual. It's the most it, noble thing you can do. It's incredible. It is lit, it's literally incredible. And that people that did not see the film would, would do this is, um, I, there's a variety of reasons they will do it. I'm sure there's some professional jealousy. I'm sure some of them actually believe that, you know, someone who is not a Muslim is not allowed to say anything about Muslims. I, I vehemently disagree with that. Um, I think some of them are scared to go against the crowd. You know, they want to look like the, the, the in crowd. Um, but none of them are correct. It is more important that, that her work be allowed to stand. And, I can say that with the exposure, especially on Sam Harris, um, she said on his show, this was, I don't know when they taped it, but she literally had no money at this point. And she started to go fund me. She's doing what she can. She she gathered like $4,000 to make like a some kind of, a, I, don't, I can't remember what it is, something that she needed. And uh, yeah, it was a trailer or a, a poster. Trailer, yeah. A, po a poster, yeah. a poster. And she made the GoFundMe. I checked it this morning. She's got almost half a million dollars. 
Yeah, $480,000 So people, this is, I mean, obviously this is the power. I mean, we, you and I pull that in easy every week with these shows. I mean, we should know. Um, no, this is the power of when you listen to someone that you know, your gut tells you that this is right. Not because you heard fifth hand from someone on Twitter saying this person was a shit. So you're going to, you're going to chime in. I have to say, you know, God bless that, that film, the, the, the head of the, uh, the film festival in New Zealand, who they're mm-hmm. going to show her film. They're showing it. They're just like, we're doing it. Even while, while all this was going on and they get a, a, an email from someone in, in San Francisco saying, I'm very disappointed that you're doing this and that you're giving this, you know, you, you do you know the controversy? And, the, and they're like, um, hi, have you seen the film? And she's like, no, I haven't seen it. But let me tell you, a lot of people are telling me these things. And I'm just saying, and they're like, listen, we would love to know your thoughts once you see the film. No, no, that's way too much work, right? It's way too much work. For also, you can't see the film, so not yet. But we will. We all will. Um, you know, one of the things that Sam Harris makes the point of, you know, several times is that if someone were going to be like a critic of this film, it would probably be somebody like Sam Harris, somebody who has been very critical of uh, the Islamic faith. Yes, yes. And uh, you know, people that are that are more on the right of Sam Harris, because this is an attempt. Like, this is a a movie that tries to understand. It is a radical attempt at empathy. I think they have a line in there that like, if like this, she would be an, an Olympic athlete if empathy were a sport, you know? Yep. Um, and the fact that I think the forces against this have kind of weaponized empathy, you know, in other words, if you're with, uh, you know, if you're for us or against us and you need to be against this thing because white women can't tell this story and et cetera, et cetera. Um, it's just, I mean, it's just so sad. And it it really is sad that people can be against humanizing that thing that, um, that, that we're scared of. And, you know, we're scared with reason. I mean, 3000 people died on 9-11 and it's scary. It's very, very scary. But don't you want to maybe understand you can call people a monster and 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 they people do monstrous things but there are that not that many people that are monsters you know um there are people that I, I for one would be interested in 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 hearing what these men have to say and i and i i deeply hope we get the chance and i believe that we will yeah so. Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing it. I mean, one of the great things about this is that it it ramps up the profile considerably. She's getting distribution uh, for like I think a week in LA so that it can right, to be considered for yeah. uh, Oscar yeah. con- contention because yep. um, yep. you have to have some sort of theatrical run, and then perhaps after that she'll be able to put it online. I know that I will watch it. Um, I DM and her. I just have all <laughs> sorts of admiration for this woman. I just think she's unbelievable. Yeah. You guys should, um, I'm Sarah, I'm so glad you told me to listen to it and you guys should, um, you guys should listen to it. I, it's three hours, but you will be riveted. Absolutely riveted. It's, um, it's incredible. So, um, our friend Megan Down wrote something the other day that blew, blew me away. 
Aren't you excited that Megan is writing again? Isn't it cool? Because, you know, she was like, I'm not writing anymore. That's it. She was like that for a while. She was like, I'm not writing. I'm not writing. I'm not doing it. And now she's just killing it. It's so great. There's so many, there's so many lines in this piece that are just so quotable. I know. I actually printed out, I printed out a bunch of them because I was like, okay, we're going to, we're going to podcast about this. I'm going to, I'm going to quote her. Um, So what is his name? What's his first name? Alex Perez? Alex Perez. Alex Perez. So they're a little teed up here for you. So I also want to talk about the whole MFA stuff, but okay. So there's a writer named Alex Perez. And Alex Perez, I guess, went through the MFA program in Iowa. Is it University of Iowa, right? Not Iowa State. The Iowa Writers Program, which is really considered pretty much the most prestigious MFA program in the country. Right. So he's a dude. He's a Cuban-American dude. He writes like a dude. You know, he's a dude. So he's kind of an anomaly in a program because most of these programs, MFA programs, you either have very sort of tends to be pretty kind of upper middle class, Ivy League kind of people, people that can afford to pay whatever 50, 60, 70, $80,000 to go to these things. And then what happens? I mean, you go to a fiction writing program, which uh, not every, you know, there is nonfiction, obviously tons of nonfiction in MFA programs. Um, but then like, what do you do with it? What do you do with this degree? Like you, you know, maybe you submit some stories to the New Yorker or to a smaller literary magazine, or maybe you don't do anything with it. You know, you just, you want it to go. I know a lot of people go through these programs just because they want to like, they want to be a writer. They don't want to actually write. Okay. Yeah. So I guess there's a small literary magazine. I had, you ever heard of Hobart? I had, had heard you? of it, but I wasn't actually okay. sure what it was. I mean, I'd seen a couple things on there, but I didn't know where it came from or anything like that. Okay, so the um, the editor, or I guess she's she's the she started it. Uh, her name was Elizabeth Ellen. Um, I guess she's one of the heads of Hobart, and she does an interview with um, Alex Perez, and he he just goes off. Okay, um, he's um, I have here he's, he's slagging the MFA programs and also the white slash female female of the literary world. And here's a quote. He's like, every white girl from some liberal arts school wants the same kinds of books. I'm interested in BIPOC voices and marginalized communities and white men are evil and all brown people are lovely and beautiful and America is awful. And I voted for Hillary and shoved my head into a tote bag and cried, cried, cried when she lost. I mean, okay. Yeah. It's eviscerating. Uh, It's unreal. I was reading this I was laughing so hard and down wrote, she, as soon as she read this, she and some of her friends started to like madly text each other. And this By is the way, quote. she texted this to me. I am one oh. of those friends. Oh. I am featured in some, t- I, she was, yeah. I am not. Yeah. Forget sorry. It. I didn't mean this, to create jealousy here. Over. But um, she wrote that one person wrote back, oh my God, I want to print this out and wrap, it, wrap myself in it. One friend said, I want to have sex with this interview, said someone else, possibly me. And yeah. I thought the same thing. I'm like, can I just have sex with this interview? Because this Well, and, and so one of the things that we should say about this is it just has like, to me, it has like the truth click of someone just not censoring themselves and just holding forth and telling you what everyone is afraid to say. And a lot of, some of it is too strong. I mean, you know, he yeah, he hit stronger than I would. I think, you know, where he was talking about um, publishing people in that last part that you just quoted. Um, and, you know, I, but any but anyway, I mean, but like you we when you feel someone telling you the truth, it's like someone like grabbing you by the collar and you just don't want them to let go. 
you know? You you recognize it. People, it, lit world can be a dirty fishbowl of a place. It just, it can be. Not not journalism. I, I, there's definitely journal world and lit world. They're different places. But it is can be a kind of airless place. And I'm not saying, you know, a lot of writers, they just go off and live their lives. They don't have it. But these like conferences and these parties, and so it's it's not, I, I've been tangentially part of it. It is not a place I want to hang out. I have friends that are that are in it that they just go and they do what they need to do and then they dip. Um, I've done a little bit of it and and it's I have such mixed feelings about it. It's always I don't really feel like I ever belong there, but I'm always kind of searching for a community. But I will say, like I did this conference once and there was this weird um, the the women that were poets there were so disparaging of like commercial journalism work. Oh, cause you can't, God forbid you make any money, right? I mean, what? I mean, it was, yeah, it was, it was, it was very much just sort of like, oh, so you do that. And I, oh, I was God. like, what is that? I'd never really seen that before. How do they, how do they live? I mean, well, they're oh. professors, I assume. Oh, well, yeah, that's another dirty yeah. fishbowl of the world. But, um, so, this is just so crazy. It's so predictable. So, okay. So though they run, the whole runs this interview and, um, and what happens? Most of the editors there, they, they basically reify exactly what Perez is saying because they all quit. They right, resign. They, they resign. They resign. And they're, the letter that they resign uh, says in part, the content that started all this was regressive, harmful, and also just boring writing. The misogyny- Which is not true. Which, which is, is not, not true. true. You so not are incorrect. It could, you can say it's a lot of things. It is but it's not. not boring writing. Yeah, but but that's a throwaway. It's like, well, what are we going to say? Well, we're going to say it's boring. Um, The misogyny and white supremacy, this is a Cuban guy, by the way, the misogyny and white supremacy were treated with empathic engagement, and that just sucked beyond measure, which is why this story ties in with Smakers. Like, don't, don't, don't you dare fucking be empathetic to anybody we think you shouldn't be empathetic toward. Excuse me, well... Who gave you the platform? You are the only people allowed to, you are the people allowed to decide who deserves empathy. That is, that is a freaking contagion in this country. And I, I think that they're wrong. So they all, they all quit. So I'm, I'm, I want to ask you, Sarah Hepla, these people resign. Okay. First of all, how much, how much money can a person working as an editor as a, at a literary magazine make? Oh, I thought like I was reading um, their lo- the longer letter, and they they say something about volunteer positions. Oh, I'm sure it's not paid. Like I'm sure I it's don't unpaid. even know that no. they get paid anything. No, no, no. Like, you can't. Maybe a nominal fee. Yeah, you, it's it's probably it's probably for cachet, right? Yeah. You know, people who are, you know, they're in the lit world. They want to be associated with you know plowshares or tin house. I get it. That's fine. That's cool. You can go to the parties. You can you know drink the wine and all that, then that's fine. I mean, you want, like you said, you want to make community, but this sort of public resignation, it's like, uh, okay. Um, so I'd like to read a little something from Megan, and then I'm going to add a little something to the MFA thing. So Megan herself got an MFA a number of years ago, and, um, she talked about she sort of had some delight in it and some shame. And I'm just going to read you a little paragraph that she wrote. This, that this girl is just hitting it out of the park. 
She says, I remember workshopping stories and essays by wealthy white men of the most classically fucked up variety. It was a pantheon of rarefied dysfunction, Ivy Leaguers with major drug problems, former athletes drowning in clinical depression, scions of old money families whose brilliance was forever butting up against their self-destruction. These were men whose love affairs with their own demons could out-carver Carver, whose thirst for violence was was both an embarrassment and a muse. These were men whose desperate need for the comfort of women did endless battle with their repulsion for any signs of need in women. They put it all on the page. Usually it sucked. Of course it did. Usually we all sucked. Occasionally it was brilliant. Even more occasionally, that brilliance was brought to the service because we'd all rolled up our sleeves and dug into the work on the terms it demanded. From there, we demanded even more of it until finally, after the 30th draft, a piece of art existed where it hadn't before. That's just beautiful. All these people working together. Now, basically, I think um, what she goes on to say in the essay is the people that are working at these magazines do not want these stories from white men. They don't want them. I mean, Perez is saying that too. I think he talks a little about that in the publishing world, right? He's like, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a contract. You're just, you're just not. I, I have heard this from a lot of people. Um, I, I was very impressed with the essay. Um, I went and read some of Perez's stuff. He has some stuff on tablet. Um, okay. It's good. He, he's a good writer. Um, he wrote something a, about like Philip Roth and masculinity yep. on tablet. Is that right? And it's yep. sort of about how he loves that whole canon of, of, you know, what we used to think of as like the, the heroic MFA men, the, like the Richard Carter, Richard Ford and Barry Hannah and all those guys. Yeah. I mean, I know, you know, there's, is there, is there bad behavior in real life uh, among these people? Yeah. Is there bad, bad behavior on the page? Yeah. Yeah. So, so the thing is now why we want to read, I mean, you know, is to understand more about the, the sort of bad behavior complexities of human behavior. Like, aren't we drawn to that kind of thing? I mean, I am, but people feel that, um, A, we've had enough of that, enough of that, or B, somehow even allowing, in quotes, people to write this way is dangerous, and we have to root it out. We have to, you know, write in a new way. I I, I don't understand any of it. I think it's ridiculous, and I think it's never, ever, ever going to work. Even if you are in publishing and you say, I'm never, ever going to publish any of these kinds of books again, they're still going to get written, and people are still going to read them. So. Megan seems to to suggest that she thinks we might have a, a a swing back in the whole like masculine voice, the like swaggering masculine hero. I wouldn't be surprised if that came back too, you know, as like a, like a, a correction to this this uh, moment that we've been in because it's been very very female dominated. I think we are seeing a lot of swing backs. I think we've had a lot of swings um, in the past five years, and I think the pendulum is swinging back um, in some ways. Um, and I'm not just talking about the midterms, which I'm not really paying attention to. Um, I think that people, I don't want to, I don't think people want to be kept, keep being told they're the wrong people. Mm-hmm. I just, you know, we, we talk about this. I think we talk about this on every episode. It's like, you have to, people want to be appreciated. They, they don't want to be told they're the wrong people and that no matter what they do, it's going to be wrong. We don't want you anymore. We've had you already. We've already had, you know, the hamburger helper 15 times. We're just done with it. It's, it's sad. Um, speaking of that, uh, and the pendulum swinging back, 
There was a little, uh, as, do you know about the publication Semaphore that's being well, started? Well, I know about the Semaphore. Yes, I know about it because I follow Ben Smith on Twitter. And so Ben Smith, the <clears throat> former founder of BuzzFeed and also former media columnist for the New York Times. And so he's been t- tweeting about it constantly. Yeah, I'd kind um, of like, okay, Ben, enough. I was right? just enough. like, come on. And like yesterday, I, know, I, know. I was like, it's enough. I thought the same thing. I was like, okay, I've seen this tweet a thousand times. Like, you're going to love Semaphore. I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to love it. I'm going to love it. Put it on the table. Put it on the table. So he left the Times about, I guess, four or five months ago. And he and another, a couple of other people, I guess, actually, I saw the whole masthead, um, are, um, are starting a new online publication called Semaphore. And, you know, a lot of people start online publications and a lot of them just, they go down in flames fast or they, you know, the dispatch becomes very successful. Um, But, but. He had a column today. Did you did you happen to read that column, Sarah? I did. Yeah, I read it. I mean, I read it pretty quickly because you sent it to me. But yes, yes. Um, let me let me find it was where it's called is. "Inside the Identity Crisis" at the New York Times. Right. So you know, Ben Smith was there at the Times um, when the whole uh, James Bennett Barry Weiss. Uh, thing went down. I'm sure we've talked about this. This was in the summer of 2020. Uh, Senator Tom Cotton wrote an op-ed saying, you know, maybe Trump should send federal forces into the cities where there was rioting. This is just post-George Floyd. There was a lot of unrest in a bunch of cities, including Portland, where I was reporting from. And um, he, he made the suggestion that that should be done. Well, Times ran it because it's an opinion page. So, you know, you have people and their opinions. And the staff inside the building uh, I don't know if it was all of the staff, a very kind of loud activist part of the class, really just lost their minds. They 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 went berserk and um, heads rolled. Well, uh, Bennett was, okay, was he fired? Kind of, like maybe he stepped down, but he, he was, he was yeah, also I in think- line. He was in line to be the next executive editor of the paper yeah. when Dean Beckett left. Like he was yeah. second. He was going to be, he was gone. Um, our, our good friend, Barry Weiss, she was at the opinion pages at this point. She, I was actually in very close communication with her while all this was going on. And um, she eventually left and started Common Sense. And she's doing a great job when she started Common Sense. She's like, I want to, I want to run the best opinion pages in the country. And she's doing a pretty, pretty badass job of it. But in any case, Ben Smith is now no longer at the Times either. And so he writes about how there's there's unrest in the building, even the threats of strikes, because the Times has done very well lately. You know, Trump left and it's like, oh, now the paper's going to tank because, you know, we, everybody was so angry about Trump. They drove the New York Times stock through the roof because they were so hungry for what the Times was running. But now Trump is gone. It's going to tank. Well, they haven't really. They had money and they bought Wordle and they bought The Athletic and they bought, um, I think, um, uh, what's cereal? Uh, oh yeah, that's right. E-I-R-A-L. Yeah. Um, and um, they've got money. Uh, they've got money. And so what's happening now is you've got the people in the building, not just the activist class, which is what I thought it would be. It'd be like, you know, they, they want more money. It's like, oh, okay, everybody wants more money. I mean, no matter if you're an activist or not an activist, you want to make more money. But the thing is that the Times is making a lot of money right now. And right. people want So there's some. labor and contract disputes right. going on. Right. Yeah. But now, one thing I was, uh, Matt Walter, was over here earlier today and we were talking about you know here's the thing when you run a business because my husband ran a business and you know the 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 employees want to raise 
And and sometimes they should get a raise. But you can't make money appear out of thin air. And when you run a business, like the employees don't know about the workman's comp. They don't know that the price of oil has doubled. So now you're paying twice as much for heat. They don't know that the price of coffee that used to be like $4 a pound is now 12 for your wholesale. So you have to build in all these costs. I don't know what the costs are for the New York Times. And I'm not saying people shouldn't get a raise, but they don't actually know what it costs to run these papers. Now, could it be greedy fat cats at the top? Sure, it could be. Um, I'm sure there might be a little bit of that, but um, but that's not the really interesting part of this story, is it, Sarah? What was the no. really, really, really juicy part of this story? Well, the juicy part of the story comes near the end when he's talking to James Bennett, mm-hmm. who gives him basically Bennett's first interview mm-hmm. uh, after leaving The Times. And uh, he is now, by the way, writing for The Economist. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, he basically says... You know, I wish I hadn't or no, he says I didn't apologize. You know, he had what's the line? Do you do you have it? I don't have it at the very end. Yeah, well, I'll I'll read a little at the top in a minute. But at the end, after he uh, this is the direct quote from it from Ben Ben Smith's piece. After we got off the phone, Bennett texted me a final note. One more thing that sometimes gets misreported. I never apologized for publishing the piece and still don't. Boom. Oh my God. I told you I read that. I was going to have an orgasm. I mean, it's just, it's so, it's so correct that people get two years after the fact, this was in summer 2020, people get to actually state what was going on because, you know, he was told to try, I mean, at the, at the, at the topmost part of the, of the piece, he was like, he was trying to have it both ways. He's like, he wrote, my regret is that editor's note. My mistake was trying to mollify people. But let me tell you something when you've got, you know, Hundreds of people, and now it's a national story breathing down your neck. I mean, we've talked about this with Donald McNeil. I mean, which is a holy crap! Is that a story? Have we have we podcast? Oh, all we've about- talked about Donald we, McNeil. Right. We've talked okay. about Donald McNeil more than we've talked about the James Bennett thing because yeah, the yeah, James yeah. Bennett thing happened. Um, well, they ha- uh, they've actually both happened around the same time, basically. Yeah. But January twenty twenty one has yeah, it's it's come up since then for some reason. Yeah. Um, you know, he, you're, you have people, you've got like the head of the newspaper and maybe HR or whatever. There's literally sitting you in an office, breathing down your neck and saying, you're going to sign this now. Like, what do you, this isn't impossible. Anyway, I, I, I loved seeing this piece today by Ben. I actually tagged him. I was like, dude, good get. Um, he's actually been, he's been on the fifth column. And I think, uh, I'm not sure, hopefully he'll be in this studio where I'm sitting at pretty soon. I'm not sure if he's in New York or not. In any case, it was- Yeah, I can't very, remember if he moved. It was very, very, it was very nice to see people talking straight because again, it's sort of like you said with um, the truth click, right? The truth click with with the um, Perez piece. With it's Alex like Perez, every, yeah. Right, you can just feel it when somebody's say, it. telling you the truth. Yeah, and it's yeah. just like, ah, there it is. This is another truth click. I mean, like immediately. And um, I- I really enjoy, I mean, it's a little bit insider baseball. I'm sorry if we're talking your ears off about this, but this is where we live. I mean, these are not only the people we know, but it's our freaking industry where we need to be able to say things the way they are. I mean, I don't think you or I have a problem doing that, but, you know, got to get out there and, and, and keep taking one for the team, including what did we volunteer to do today, Sarah? What was the other thing we vo- or I volunteered us to do? What did you volunteer us to do today, Nancy Rommelman? That article you sent me. The last article you sent me. Oh, we're going to talk about the clitoris? <laughs> that is that what you're talking about? 
Yeah, but before we get before we do that, what's what's the name of this podcast, Sarah? Smoke them if you got them. <laughs> we are, ladies and gentlemen, we are going to talk about the clitoris. Thank God, I've been waiting Thank for God. this. Finally, finally, the clitoris. Um, My so attention Sarah, was snagged by a, a headline in the New York Times that says half the world has a clitoris. Why don't doctors study it? This is a story by the journalist Rachel E. Gross, and it's basically uh, going over the fact that there is just an, um, a real lack of knowledge uh, around the clitoris in training doctors in anatomy. And one of the the problems with this, I mean, we can talk about what this does. Into, I've heard a lot about people not knowing about the clitoris in terms of sexual pleasure, but one of the things that this does in terms of uh, surgical procedures is that not knowing the actual anatomy of the clitoris is that oftentimes, or not oftentimes, but what can happen is that surgeons can accidentally nick or cut things that will then um, affect the the feeling and the sensation in the clitoris. Basically, one of the revelations of this piece or of recent years is that the clitoris, which we think of as sort of like a little, a little nub. A the little man nub, in the boat, the man in the boat. That is actually the tip of an iceberg. Yep. And yep. so the clitoris, the it's actually a deep structure that's sort of like, I think it's sort of shaped like, like a tear duct and then it has kind of like wishbone sides anyway. Um, and it's all erectile tissue. So it's just, it's and it reaches to the pelvis. Like it's a much more involved structure. Uh, than, iceberg is a good, iceberg is a good analogy. You see yeah. the tip of it, but it's quite, it. there's quite a large system inside that is also part of the clitoris. And so if if doctors aren't made aware of this, then there are things that can happen in surgery that can, you know, we hear from a few different women who had like one of them was like a hip surgery. Oh, and it's and it's it's truly, truly heartbreaking. I mean and these then, are, you know, she cannot she cannot have an orgasm. And she said, it's like the, the experience, you know, and, and for months, you know, she's waiting and they're like, no, it's just numbness. It'll come back. But like, she's like, it's like an electric socket got pulled out. The electricity stream is gone. So something happened there, you know, and this is, um, this is a pretty, I mean, we, we hear a lot of stories about how, um, you know, doctor's manuals or or medicine in general was sort of set up for men and male bodies and the problems that that come from that. And this is one of these interesting places where even as we've corrected that in other parts of medicine, the clitoris has kind of fallen between the cracks. No pun um, intended. <laughs> no, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it was kind of like nobody knew who was in charge of the clitoris. Like, is this the OBG? Is this like the the OBGYN should be doing this, or like one of the doctors that they that they profile in here, who is a urologist from Washington D.C., and she has appointed herself the clitorologist. The, the national clitorologist. Um, but anyway, she thinks it should be the purview of urologists Uro since yeah. as a general rule, they're the ones that that deal with the penis. Um, I love the uh, the line in there. It says, many of doctors thought of, think of the vulva as a small town in the Midwest. Doctors t tend to pass through it on the way to someplace else. 
you know, right. whether it's the ovaries Meaning or the, the cervix, cervix or, or the, you're just like yeah. not, I mean, and, and, and you, there isn't even, I remember one of, one of the doctors uh, that quoted in the article said in medical school, there was just nothing. There was nothing mentioned about the clitoris at all. It's like, it's kind of wild. Kind of an important part of a woman's body. Like <laughs> I had a I so there was a I may have mentioned this on the on the show before. There was this um this uh legal show. Oh, what was it called? Anyway, you'll you'll know when it, it was starring five people, Laura Flynn Boyle, Cameron Mannheim, a couple of other people. I I'll think of it later and find it. But anyway, I was interviewing all five of the women for Marie Claire magazine. This is a thousand years ago, 2000, 2001. And um, they all had the same set of questions. And one was, what's your favorite body part? And Cameron Mannheim said, well, that would be my clitoris. Yeah, she did. <laughs> yeah. Yes, she did. Um, it It is kind of shocking. It's kind of shocking that people just, the doctors, they're kind of examining you and they just, they don't. And think about it. Let me ask you a question. I've had many gynecological appointments. Yeah. Have you ever had a gynecologist like address your clitoris? Never. Never. And never. it's so beautiful. And it's wonderful. It's really it's such so a- They never compliment it. It's, it's a- <laughs> no, but um, I was thinking about this. Uh, it's mediocre. Um <laughs> I was thinking about this uh, in the last part of the the story, the urologist that we were talking about, Dr. Rachel Rubin, sh- the way that she does um, procedures now is that she doesn't use a bed sheet over the bottom half because she kind of thinks that that comes from the tradition of like, it's shameful down there. Don't look, you know. Or it's um, scary. It's scary. It's the purview of doctors. Yeah. And then she uh, held, she gives them a handheld mirror and shows so that they can see what she's doing. I um, actually have had that years ago. With a, you have? With a, yeah, yeah. When I was having a gynecological, they, they, I don't know if it was as nice as a long handheld mirror, but I remember her giving me a mirror and showing me, showing me like my cervix and all that, which was kind of cool. I mean, like, when are you going to see your own cervix? You're so, not. Uh, yeah. So I... <laughs> I think that's really cool. And I actually did have an OBGYN appointment where I had this really cool nurse and she was kind of like narrating out loud what she, she was seeing. So it wasn't <laughs> a handheld mirror, but she was like, oh, the service is, cervix is nice and pink. And oh, I yeah, was yeah, like, yeah. I didn't know the cervix was pink. I thought that that was just like a cartoon. You know, you always see the cervix what? pink in the, in the, but you know, I thought it was like, I don't know, like. What color is it going to be? White? No, pink. Come on, it's flesh. It's skin. It's inside. It's blood. It's sensitive. I I didn't know. I didn't know. Here's the point. The point is how little I knew about my own body and my own parts. And, you know, it, it was, I was probably like 44 years old at the time, you know? And I was just like, how did I not know this? All the different things that I don't know. Um... And when you think about that curtain that gets dropped, you know, that is like a metaphorical curtain for a lot of women. I did have a curtain dropped when I was having a cesarean section, which I guess kind of makes sense. But I I wouldn't mind watching that. Yeah, well, I was was pretty dopey at that point anyway. There was a quote. So in the New York Times, uh, you know, there you can. It's always kind of worth, by the way, if you ever read an article in the New York Times and you're like, this is driving me insane or this is great. Click the reader the reader comments. They're usually pretty good. Um, often, if you read a, a, a 
Anyway, just go. Take yeah, a look. you go but, to comments and then go to readers' picks. They're usually the better picks. ones. Yeah. Anyway, this the readers' one was like I learned more about my clitoris from Cosmopolitan magazine than I ever did from a gynecologist. Well, Which right. Is, I mean, gynecologists don't teach you anything about your clitoris. I mean, they don't. What would they interesting. even? Yeah. You know, I mean, it made yeah. me wonder, like, where? Like, and oh, and here's the other thing I was thinking about. Well, I didn't even know about. I didn't even know about clitorises until like I was like a senior in high school. Oh, Sarah. I know. I know. (laughs) Uh, I think I was probably about seven. (laughs) Right. right. You were humping a chair. I wasn't humping a chair, but I knew there was something down there that was. I knew there was something down there, but I didn't didn't do it. It just wasn't like that. I don't think it was. What's weird is by that time I was having sex with, with guys. Huh. Oh, so, I mean, well, I was sexually active before I was aware of, like, orgasms coming from the clitoris. Like, obviously, just, I knew things were down there, but, like, I just, but I didn't. I didn't know. So interesting. It's like, you know, people talk about sex ed in school, and I don't really, I never had sex ed in school. I went to a private school, so we didn't, we didn't have that. And, like, I kind of learned, you know, kind of picked up. I learned about and, genital warts, and that's the one thing ew. I remember from my sex education. I will never ew. forget it. What, how did they teach you that? Awesome. Did you pictures, pictures yeah. that you can never unsee? <laughs> That's the only part I remember. I remember the, the STI day and the do rest tell of it you, was just I lost on they me. Tell you how to avoid them? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but I mean, I wonder, it's interesting, like, what would, like, do you want, it's it's kind of like definitely, is it crossing a line for your doctor, for a gynecologist to tell like a young woman like, okay, look, so here's your clitoris. And this is something that, you know, is a, for a lot of women, this is a real center of pleasure. I mean, I don't want them. I don't know. It's That's a actually weird what thing. the story kind of conjured for me was like, where do I think that conversation should happen? Um, you know, I think with with a parent, but if, you know, but parents don't always share that information. I mean, especially if they're from a different generation or a different culture. Um, I do know, I mean, I liked the idea though of women seeing between their legs. Now I think there's a lot of women that are like, Oh hell no, I don't want to do that. I know a lot of women that are scared to go to the gynecologist and they're very, they're very upset about the whole situation. A couple of things. I had a, I had a, um, I uh, used to get bikini waxed when I was in Portland from a gal. Loved her. She was a friend of mine. She, lo- I was like, is it like, what's it like? She's like, Ugh, for me, it's like, it's like emptying the dishwasher. <laughs> like, sure. meaning. But um, she said, almost every woman is like, oh, is my labia too big? Is my labia too big? And I'm like, what the fuck? Like what, you- when we were reading this article, they said one of the, one of the things that can happen, one of the ways you can lose sensation. There's a couple of things. There's something called vaginal mesh, which I think has to do with like incontinence. Um, there's something else, that poor woman that got a hole punched in her clitoris because they thought there was a little dot on it. That was awful. Um, but one way you do it is women go for elective vagioplasty, which if people don't know what labioplasty. it is. Labioplasty. Oh, lab- oh va- labioplasty, which is like, okay, so you know, you've got your clitoris and your vulva and there's like some skin there. That's how we're built. It's like a little sleeve of some sort, I guess, for when you're having intercourse. I don't know. It's just the way you're built, right? 
And I guess some people don't like it. And I'm sure that some people's is, is more, more pulchritudinous than others, but people go and they get their vagina, they get their lips chopped off so that there's just now literally like a little slit. So you look like a four-year-old. Okay. So like there's nothing, so there's nothing. Going I think to, the hope is that you look like a porn star, but okay, I yeah. find this. I mean, but this is the, this is the fastest insane. growing cosmetic surgery. It has been for several years. I can't. Um, I can barely talk about it. Just the one of the women that we meet uh, in this article is a woman that was actually from Dallas, named Jessica Pinn. I think she actually lives in San Francisco now, but she had gotten a labiaplasty at the age of eighteen, which is very, very which young. Is very, very young. Because I think one of the reasons this is so fast growing is because it's part of what they call the mommy makeover, which is you were asking me about I, earlier today. You'd well, never to, heard the phrase mommy okay. makeover. I had ne- I when we were we were doing some research into this, I was clicking on different things. I was cl- clicking on labiaplasty and I went to like images and I saw this thing from um like uh, I don't know, it was a, it wasn't like a actual image of it, but it was more like, you know, your mommy makeover and I sent it to Sarah like, "What the hell is this? A mommy makeover?" And I know, Sarah, and I was like, "Girl, girl, that's been around for like Fifteen years is like huge in Dallas. There's like big billboards that talk about getting the mommy makeover, which is basically a bundle of plastic surgery procedures to help. You know, the idea is to not necessarily change your body, but restore your body after childbirth. Okay, I you know your skin is sagging. Sometimes it has effects on your boobs and the the hoochie. Um, I first of all, I'm 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 a friend of mine I went out to dinner with the other night. She had a breast reduction. She's very happy about it. She was always super busty. She's a tennis player. She's like, I was done with this. She's like, Nancy, I'm just done. And she looks great. We were sitting with another gal. We're all the same age. And she's like, you know, I've always wanted to get a boob lift. I'm like, go get one. If you want to get a boob lift, go like go get it. But I gotta tell you. Messing with the vagina down there for a couple of things. I think one of the reasons it happened is because, you know, starting, I guess, about 20 years ago, Brazilian waxings, you know, where Brazilian is when you get all your hair off, like there's nothing, you have no hair left, became extremely popular. And, you know, when you have no hair down there, everything's quite visible. I did it exactly once and my husband saw me and just started laughing. Okay, so that was my experience getting a Brazilian. But the thing is that if you have I never a Brazilian- thought about that because I always think about the labiaplasty stuff as being porn um inspired, which I think it is. Well, they're but all you're, hairless. They're all but hairless. Your point that it's also like if you had the big bush, nobody would be as like concerned about the lips because you can't see it. You can't see the, 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 okay. Can yeah. I ask you a question? Like yes. you know, I I love sex as much as the next girl and I love you know, being with a man, but like, is the penis the most beautiful thing you've ever seen in your life? No, it is not. Yes, is the it vagina? Is. Wait, yes. no. Oh, <laughs> sorry. sorry. No, it's I'm not. Sorry. I, I, just, I, I was trying to score <laughs> points. I'm single. I'm single, Nancy, and I really <laughs> think. Don't send okay. pictures. Anyway, Jesus no, Christ! Don't not. send pictures. But neither is a vagina. Okay, guess what? They might not be the most beautiful things, but guess, if they work. That's awesome. And if you get a labiaplasty, these people, it no longer works. Meaning, okay, maybe your husband or you think it looks more pretty, but you can't have an orgasm anymore. There is no, there is no, I I cannot think of anyone that's going to make that trade. And it is not the case that that, that, that many people getting labiaplasties this happens to. But even if there was any chance, 
No, first of all, I wouldn't do it anyway, but no way, no way, no. One of the, so, so I was telling you the story about Jessica Penn, who's this woman that got a labiaplasty at 18 and, and something went wrong during the procedure and she did in fact lose the ability to orgasm. And so she made it her mission. One of the things she realized was that, um, the anatomy of the clitoris was incorrect in several of the most prominent textbooks. And so she made it her mission to get that information changed. You can go to her Instagram page and, um, it's not there anymore. The Instagram's gone. No, it's- not the one they mentioned, but she has oh, a different okay. one. I'll send it to okay. you. Okay. Um, and she's gotten 10 textbooks changed, and it says that she's on her way to getting 20 changed. Um, she wrote a long something about this New York Times article, you know, because, of course, like, she was like, they didn't include this, and they didn't include that. Um, but uh, one of the things that she mentioned was that it was her research. And I mean, she I don't even think she's a doctor. I she's think not she's a just, doctor. I don't think, she's yeah. just somebody that had a bad surgery and wrote a post yep. on Medium yep. and made it her mission to get this stuff changed. But anyway, she's the one that figured out that um, we, we've always heard that the clitoris has 8,000 nerve endings, which is a lot. Um, but she's the one that figured out that that, that, it, that, would, that, that number comes from cows. <laughs> and... We actually didn't know how many were in a human clitoris. And so there is a doctor from Oregon that has done this research that's coming out now. They tease it in this story that, you know, like, but it's much more than that. So there's actually more nerve endings than we ever realized, you know. He said many more. He can't reveal it till the book is out. By the way, my friend Leah Nash took his photo. It's It's a great photo. And I mean, think about this for a second, Sarah. He's now writing a book coming out all about the clitoris. That is, that is information. That's, you know, we, we started out talking about like why you should be able to make a film, something that you're interested in, people that can get it and they can understand new things. Understanding the clitoris, this is an awesome thing. Awesome thing for like our daughters, okay? Or or, or people coming up or anybody or old people. It's like- Just boys, the boys are going to read that book. The boy, hell yeah, boys are going to read this book. We, I put something on Twitter. I put a tweet like about like, oh, hey, doctors don't understand a lot. Listen, Sarah and I, we volunteer. We'll volunteer if you need to help. You need people to help you out. You me for that. To, to like, so you can, uh, you need something. We're, we're here for you for science, for science. We're here for science. We're here for, for science. science. But, um, but the, the, the thing is that this is, this is a, this is a good thing. This is a good thing. Oh, I was going to say the comments we got. Guys, you're like, when we said it was like a small, it was like a small Midwestern city that you you don't look up when you're driving other past other places. The comments were like, I've been looking for that city for a long time. Yeah, or that's yeah. my favorite city yeah, or so, whatever. So yeah. anyway, sorry, I botched yeah. that. Joke. Men love clitoris. Um, and if they don't, that's the wrong show them, man. Show them. They, they show will them. love it. They will yeah. love it. They will, they will love it. They'll be like, oh my God, that's how you do that. You're like, yeah, baby. Okay. So, um... Speaking of hot boxes, yeah, there's a segue. We just we keep having the segues, Sarah. Um, what's in yours? I watched a really fun four part docu series about the multi level marketing scheme, um, Lula Row. Have you ever heard of it? Oh, we. Yes, no, but but remind and me. It's, yes, it's, I okay. have. So the movie is called Lula Rich. It's on Amazon Prime. And I was just like, uh, my friend and I, when we were in, in Hot Springs, we were just kind of like poking around for things to, to look at. We, we stumbled upon this. This this movie came out in 2021. I was like, LuLaRoe, that rings a bell. Basically, it's these, it's these leggings 
and like maxi skirts. I have to tell you, they showed so many different pieces of clothing. And I was like, I will uniquely like I am. I will not wear any of those. Like Ew. all of it. But uh, but they were supposed to. So supposedly like these super luxuriously soft leggings that had like cool original prints. Um, and so one of the things is that this woman who's uh, she's in Utah, she starts selling it. She starts selling it at wholesale. Then she starts like like branching out and they basically grow so fast that it grows into a billion dollar company. It's mostly staffed by their family, by the way, that doesn't know what they're doing. So like at all levels, like everyone's just kind of winging it here. And then the product like completely like the product control, quality control goes out the window. Um, the the pieces are ripping. There's some that smell like like stinky fish and, and there's some that are moldy because they've got Ew. like warehouses that they left the stuff out in the in the rain. And so those are coming. And then um and and then you see the hilarious thing. I think this was featured on Samantha B. Um, because some of the the leggings that got like incorrect, like for instance, there's one that has hamburgers all over it. Now, why you would want hamburgers all over your leggings is a completely different question. But the but there's a hamburger that's right over the crotch. Oh, God. You know, and it just looks, yeah. <laughs> and there's another one where there's like some graphic coming out of the crotch, but it so looks like a penis. It oh. looks, it's like a big cylindrical thing, but it looks full on like a penis. Anyway. Was it a pyramid scheme? It So the... You know, the controversy is whether it's a multi-level marketing, you know, company, which is legal, or is it a pyramid scheme? And they eventually, spoiler alert, they they are found guilty of well, I'm trying to remember. I think they they they're found guilty, but then they have to they they basically have to reorganize. You know, they have to reorganize the structure because the way they had it was that basically these people at the top were making millions of dollars and 80% of the people involved were hung out to dry. Okay. It is a, like, it is a very gripping, fast-paced. The personalities are great. The plot twists are wonderful. The women that they interviewed that were part of this company are fantastic. Okay. Um, you know, they're, they're like, I don't know. They're, they're like blunt and funny and the kind of women you would want to hang out with. And they're, it's just, it's cool. Cool. Well, uh, what's in my hot box actually, um, kind of dovetails off something we talked about a couple of weeks ago. I was talking about Mary Gateskill and different writers that work for me. I think this was in our, um, in our open thread. And I don't know if you, I think you did. You mentioned Joyce Carol Oates' Black Water. Yes. So I grabbed it the other day. It's a very quick book. I, I'm sorry to say I still have about 25 pages to go. I was trying to finish it last night, but I fell asleep. But um, I like it very much. Um, it's a very, I would almost call it an interesting kind of literary exercise, what yeah. she does, trying to, she's in the head of this girl um, in the book. Her name is Kelly Kellensworth or something like that. She's it's basically based on the Ted Kennedy, Mary Jo Copernic, uh, when the car went off the bridge uh in in Chappaquiddick, uh off of Martha's Vineyard, and Mary Jo Copernic drowned and Ted Kennedy, you know, he ran and and tried, I don't know if they tried to cover it up, but it obviously was not covered up. Right. Anyway, it's it's based on this story. Um, 
he just goes by the senator, but it's very, very clearly him. I mean, mm-hmm. very clearly. Uh, and it's basically inside the head of the gal as she's in the car. Yeah. And it's um, it's very interesting. It's very interesting the way she built a story. I have not read Joyce Carol Oates before, but I kept sort of, I kept sort of kind of um, transporting myself into to be Joyce Carol Oates, like her thinking about what's the next thing here? What's the next thing she's thinking? And then, of course, it's unbelievably gripping and, yeah. and terrifying. Absolutely, absolutely terrifying. Yeah. And to think about, to think, I mean, I, I, I'm i a little claustrophobic, a little, I'm a lot claustrophobic. Um, anyway, but to just, to, to be that, she puts you in that car. And that is uh, not a very comfortable place to be. So it's um, an intense book, man. When I read it, I was about 23 and it made quite an impression on me. I loved that book. It's very, it's very quick. And then I also, uh, yeah, anyway, so that is what I have read. Um, anything else here, Ms. Hepler? Well, we have, we have a big event coming up. And I don't know when this episode is going to drop. It's, I I have ding ding ding. I have information for. So we should we should tell our listeners we have a hero in this we show. We do. His name, his name is Mickey Freeland, and Mickey um, takes our files that we record. It's on two. It's on two tracks right here on Zencaster. We send them to Mickey in Maryland, and he puts it together and he adds the uh, intro music and the outro music, and he sends it back to us. Super loving and fun, Mickey. We literally could not do this show without you. We love you. you, Mickey. We love you, Mickey. And I um, I actually uh, texted him right before we started, and I said, can you drop this tomorrow by noon? So, well, so this will be dropping tomorrow at noon, Wednesday, the 19th of October. And we are then, tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern time, we are going to do our first Zoom. That'll be for paying subscribers. So, guys, if you're listening to this tomorrow and you're not yet a paid subscriber, why don't you hop on the train and um, join us tomorrow night. I'll be sending out a link. Um, Sarah, I will be sending out a link tomorrow afternoon um, to the paying subscribers. So you can come join us and we'll hang out for, I don't know, an hour or two and just we'll, we'll see what we're going to talk about. Probably the clitoris. And uh, yeah, so so um, yeah, uh, we look forward to to meeting you all. we got a couple of ideas we want to kick around with you guys. And um, yeah. I think that's all we have. And other than that, we hope that you're safe, happy, <laughs> joyous and free. That's right. Um, Okay, Sarah Heppler, I'll see you later. Smoke them. Bye. Slip